Well, good afternoon and welcome to Talk of the Towns. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is aired on WERU Community Radio since 1993, dedicated to the proposition that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I'm your host, Ron Beard, hoping you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. And a reminder that during the pandemic and its aftermath, we're recording this show in advance and won't be taking any calls today. Well, today I'm happy to have uh, with us Paul Anderson. Paul is now the executive director of the Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries, but he's had a career that spanned a number of, of uh, different kinds of, of activity in the marine sciences in Maine. Glad to have a, a chance to talk with Paul. Well, good afternoon, Ron. Nice to be here. Nice to see you and hello to your listeners. So, Paul, I think um, right now um, you're anticipating the, um, the, your replacement at the Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries. Um, whenever that's going to happen, you're going to step back. And, and, uh, but maybe listeners would be um, helped by having a sense of what the Maine Center for Co Coastal Fisheries is. Sure. The, the center's based in Stonington Harbor, right on the harbor, in, in the, really the largest lobster landing port in the world. We're all about um, fisheries, fisheries science, and fisheries management. Uh, the, the mission of the uh, Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries is to help sustain uh, commercial fishing in eastern Maine and beyond, and, uh, and in particular the communities that depend on commercial fishing here. So we, and we implement that, and there's really three simple elements to our strategic plan. One is collaborative research, uh, second one is collaborative management, and then thirdly, collaborative education. And we see those three elements uh, integrating nicely around collaboration, the importance of having partnerships and other organizations and, and fishermen and community members participating and gathering information through the science and research, and then uh, using that information to see if we can find more progressive ways to manage collaboratively. And there are some very clear ways that is um, in play right now here in Maine. And then collaborative education as well, where we're kind of adding to traditional uh, K-12 education with a program we call the Eastern Maine Skippers Program. So those three pieces all fit together around what we're trying to do to help sustain working waterfronts in Eastern Maine. So you've got a geography, but you also you're poised on the Gulf of Maine, which is, is is a different kind of geography. Talk a little bit about that. Those two two geographies. Yeah, the the center was was founded um, many years ago. We're going on our twentieth year next year, and Robin Alden had created a wonderful, very uh, innovative, creative thinker, and um, had started the center as the Penobscot East Resource Center, thinking about an area to the east of the Penobscot Bay up to Canada. And it tends to be um, a couple of lobster zone management zones, a couple of big counties, Hancock and Washington County, very fishing dependent um, part of the United States, frankly. And, um, and yes, it's within the Gulf of Maine. Well, what's been exciting to me as I, as I came to the center and they changed the name to the Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries was a recognition that there's a biogeographic part of the Gulf of Maine. It's defined by the oceanographic current that comes from the Bay of Fundy in Canada, comes down our shores and then gyres off at Penobscot Bay. And that is called the Eastern Maine Coastal Current. 
And so that's kind of created this place that's not just a, a social place of those two counties and their communities, but it's also a biogeographic and oceanographic place. So we can start thinking about the environment and as a, com as a compartment and, uh, and how our work in science and natural science and social science can be packaged uh, in some unique ways, but at the same time recognizing that we're part of a larger gulf and part of a larger ocean system that the planet has to deal with. And so, you know, we may get into a little bit of the nuances about the Gulf of Maine, but it's a, it's a fascinating place and there's some real challenges going on, but some real opportunities for us to, to shake it up on how we, um, we balance, you know, prosperity and conservation in this place. Along with, with the, the biological um, boundaries, there are also management boundaries. And your, the fisheries that you, your organization deals with start at the town level with clams, um, alewives, I suppose, um, and then goes out to the Maine's uh, regime of, of management and then into federal waters. Yeah, correct. And, and so that kind of foretells one of the initiatives that, that we've been working on since I arrived about four and a half, five years ago, it's called the Eastern Maine Coastal Current Collaborative, wherein we're uh, trying to explore how we can do ecosystem-based fisheries management across those divides that you mentioned. And so we recognize that we have to go in the upland, we have to go up the rivers, the estuaries, and, and understand how the freshwater systems need to be conserved and restored, how those then contribute to the saltwater system and the marine system which, as you point out, goes off beyond state waters into federal waters. So some of our work, for example, is working on understanding where the, the ground fish are, the codfish in eastern Maine. Where did they go and what are the drivers to determining whether they can recover? And in all probability, it's a food web kind of issue, a climate change kind of issue. And so we're dabbling around with some of our research in federal waters with that federally managed species. But as you point out, the clams and alewives and other species that are clearly managed in the coast and the near shore of the three mile zone of the state are also um, important for us to try to understand and help communities to, you know, observe and, and co-manage some of those species if possible. Talk about the, um, some of the programs um, in addition to the one you've just mentioned. Um, tell us more about the, the Skippers program, which is just a, um, a great, great way to engage young people, but all of their parents, all of their relatives and the communities they live in. Yeah, Skipper's program is pretty remarkable. I remember before I came to the center being privileged to be a, a, a judge for some of the Skipper's competitions, so to speak. This is a, it targets high school kids, and right now it's in nine of the schools in Hancock and Washington County. We aspire to uh, include the other two in far eastern Washington County. And what we're doing is supplementing the core curriculum for, for teachers and trying to uh, provide some experiential learning, some context to education that some of these young people um, find more exciting. Some of these young students are fishermen or want to be fishermen and they're from fishing families and they're curious about that being their career path and some of the traditional education is just not as exciting to them. So we, we try to put a flavor on that that, that adds um, experiential out of the classroom opportunities working with the teachers to enhance what they're offering to the students and providing some special programs that are outside of core student hours. For example, uh, right now we're, we're doing a real push on some boating safety 
uh, navigation safety and some of those elements for, for young people and fishermen at large in Eastern Maine so they can practice their trade safely. And we had an interesting uh, engagement last week in Cutler, Maine, where uh, Tom was presenting the program on, on boating safety and safety skills and how to use um, you know, Gumby suits and, and these kinds of tools in the water, safety rafts. And one of the mothers just said, we have to teach this to all the kids. It's like driver's ed. We just have to teach all the kids and young people on the coast how to be safe on the water, which was kind of an interesting endorsement of what we're doing. Um, so the Skippers is 10 years old now. We had a bit of a speed bump with the COVID, like many of you know, your listeners are familiar, and, uh, but we're, we're persisting and continuing to offer what we can to keep these students engaged, and, and presumably they become the stewards of the future. They become the leaders of the industry in the future, and so getting them used to these concepts of ecosystems and, and you know, some of the conflicts that they're facing, whether it's in the lobster fishery and offshore wind energy, and these things, we can bring those up in a real-world kind of way with these young people. One of the other aspects is is kind of a, a both a problem solving and an introduction to how to do research. It seems so. Each each year you have some kind of a problem set that they're asked to to work on. Right, that's correct. And then uh, and, and the last couple of years it was to explore how what a new fishery might be and could you try to establish a new fishery. For example, one one group tried exploring the green crab, which is an invasive European green crab, and you know, how could we exploit that and either extirpate it, that is, get it out of the ecosystem, but actually turn it into an opportunity? So that was interesting. This year, we're, um, we're giving them a couple of uh, new opportunities. One is looking at alternative gear designs for lobster that can help to minimize the risk of entanglement, which is one of the big issues facing our fishery right now, entanglement of right whales. And uh, there are lots of different technologies in play to explore what fishermen can do to comply, but also more importantly, to minimize the risk. And uh, so some of the students have gotten interested in some new reflector gears and some new ways of understanding how grappling used to be a way of, of fishing. Uh, not just push button, you know, um, uh, pop-up buoys that, that perhaps your listeners have, uh, have heard about. Those are unproven right now, and I'm not sure the scale that we need is going to fit. So, so that's, a, that's an example. Another one is uh, we're going to try to um, sponsor some exploration of what happened to our shrimp fishery here in Maine. Where did the North, North, Amer North American shrimp go, and what's going on with it as a nascent population in eastern Maine, and can we do some sampling? We're working with state and other scientists. And, and get the kids to explore you know, climate change through that kind of a lens. So those are a couple of kind of real world challenges that I think the teachers are very excited about building curriculum with us. And there's a crossover naturally with the kind of research that um, the Maine Center is doing. Um, I think of your Sentinel survey, uh, for instance. Maybe you give listeners a, a little a taste of that. Yeah, the Sentinel survey is also going on, I think, 10 years now. and. It, as I mentioned a moment ago, it's a way of working with fishermen to mine their knowledge of the old fishing grounds, the historic fishing grounds for cod and other members of the ground fish complex in eastern Maine, and go do some sampling uh, throughout the year and try to target um, those various species. And then we sample those species biologically for different features, genetics and other kinds of signals that talk about their health and their fecundity, their ability to breed, uh, their food webs, and, and whether there are, you know, what external forces are, are in play in terms of preventing their recovery. And so that, that 
uh, Sentinel survey has continued to evolve over the years, and uh, it's a strong partnership with the University of Maine, um, and also you know the DMR and, and NOAA are are uh, you know they're kind of um, bystanders and supporters of what we're up to because it's a unique survey. There's no other uh, process trying to collect that information in Eastern Maine right now. The uh, the notion of, of checking on on species. Are you seeing any any change in, in because we've seen a, a decline in ground fish? Are you seeing any hopeful signs? Um, I I think well in that particular fishery, the fishermen are reporting both in our sample as well sampling as well as in the fishery that there are cod out there. What's been a conundrum for us is we're not finding adult cod that can spawn and perpetuate. A local population. We know from the work of Ted Ted Ames, who was one of the founders of the center, Robin Alden's partner, that um, that there were traditional nursery grounds for these fish for cod, and that they probably had a fidelity, they had a home, so to speak, in the Gulf of Maine, and so we needed to manage we need to manage them different if we can recover them. And one of the challenges we're finding right now is that we're not getting the adult spawning cod that we should be seeing. So it causes us to ask, well, where are the juveniles coming from? Mm. And uh, so that's kind of an observation that's out there. Also, your listeners have probably heard that due to climate change, probably temperature regimes, the Gulf of Maine is seeing other kinds of species come in from, from southern Maine. And, and a couple of notable is the black sea bass. It's something that was, is common along the, the Atlantic shore. And that's, that's apparently showing up here in the Gulf of Maine. And that requires a management regime that we don't yet have. Um, <clears throat> and secondly, squid. Apparently squid are showing up uh, offshore and uh, has always been kind of a southern New England fishery. We may find in the coming decade or two that some of our fishermen are, are um, targeting squid. Mm. Paul, as I recall, um, meeting you first, we're, we'll just remind listeners that we're talking with Paul Anderson of Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries, really talking about his career that spans um, many different chapters. And uh, Paul, the, the first chapter that I recall was when you were a biologist with the Department of Marine Resources. And, and one of the, the, the aspects of that work is making sure that the clams we got on our plates were safe. Yeah, I, I have my training is as a microbiologist, so I have bachelor's and master's degrees in microbiology and had done um, <clears throat> some of my graduate work on, on fish disease. So I'd been working in kind of a marine setting with microbiology. And when the opportunity came up to, um, to get work after college, I, I got hired to run the laboratory that was based in Eastern Maine. And, and in fact, got the opportunity to build a laboratory in Lemoyne State Park um, as a young man and um, stayed with the department for 10 years and ultimately ran the public health department, which oversees all of the pollution monitoring for clam flaps, opening and closing clam flaps, uh, marine biotoxin, things like that. And um, <clears throat> one of the things that I learned at that time that was, I think, really important to my career was um, the really the role that uh, non-governmental interests, citizen science, can and needs to play in some of these programs. We were, we were saddled with a with an ultimatum from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration that the state didn't have sufficient information to warrant the open shellfish beds in Maine. And so they are forced to close, I think, a third or more of the shellfish beds in a very arbitrary way. And our Department of Marine Resources was in a kind of a holy crap moment. And uh, what are we going to do about this? And the legislature 
put some resources into that. But I realized when I got into that space that we had an opportunity by working with organizations like yours at the time, Cooperative Extension, Esperanza Stanshoff in particular, who was a strong leader in, in citizen science here in Maine back then, and uh, the coastal program, Kathleen Layden, kind of the three of us, me in a regulatory spot, and, and them in more of a community connectivity spot, just determined that we really needed to coach citizen science and figure out how we could practice good, legitimate citizen science with all the quality control and training and, uh, and make sure that we could get some more capacity. And ultimately, within a few years, we had that program going and we were reversing that trend and began reopening clam flesh because we were able to, um, to conduct that sampling. So that, that was profound for me, Ron, in terms of recognizing that government can't do it alone and science can't do it alone. And that's the pathway I've been trotting ever since. And what citizens got out of that was a sense that they could um, help understand their backyards, what was going on in their backyards, and contribute to, in, in this case, um, clam flats being opened and being able to harvest clams. Yeah, and uh, I got to tell you a story, uh, an aha moment that I had in, at that time. I'm a young scientist and I'm trying to get my handle around what are we doing with harmful algal blooms, either marine biotoxins, your listeners know them as red tide. And although the state of the art right now is much more technological and, and a really much more precise probably method using high performance liquid chromatography and other kinds of laboratory tools to test our products and make sure our waters are safe from red tide. At the time, this would have been in the early 90s, I guess, the state of the art was marine um, bioassays. So we were using laboratory mice to, um, to determine if shellfish were safe. and simply grind up shellfish, extract them with a mild acid solution, and you take some of that material and you literally inject it into a mouse. And depending on what happens to that mouse, how quickly that mouse dies, tells you how much toxin is in there. That's barbaric. But the aha moment for me was when the fishing industry was very doubtful that red tide even exists. They thought it was just a conspiracy thing that the state really didn't know what they were doing and it was just too abstract. We brought some uh, clamors into the laboratory and let them witness the testing. And uh, I never saw you know, the looks on those clamors' face ever like that. They just went white watching this kind of barbaric test. And, and it convinced them that, all right, this is for real. And really that helped us to engage the industry and say, look, this is honest and we're in this together. We want to protect your industry. We want to protect your consumers. And, um, and you need to know that this is how we do our part and how can you help us. And it, it, that again, you know, that along with the citizen science piece were just parts of breaking down those walls between the mystery that might happen in a laboratory that happens in a scientist's mind and um, making sure that it's grounded in reality. And one of the other aspects that you got involved in, probably outside of your job description in some ways, was helping to shape um, a series of conferences on the health of Penobscot Bay. Uh, what do you remember about some of those meetings and the conferences themselves? Yeah, that was great. We were working together on that, the Penobscot Bay Network, um, which, you know, the Penobscot Bay Stewards that we created back then is still going, mm -hmm. still a going thing, mm -hmm. and they come every year to visit my center now as part of their education. It's a volunteer training kind of opportunity, full immersion for a cohort of, um, of people every spring. 
Um, so the Penobscot Bay Network was intriguing um, because we felt, you know, we in our space of boundary standing, non-governmental organizations, scientists, I think I was probably back at the university by then running the Sea Grant program. And um, we saw the obvious bioregion of Penobscot Bay, big watershed with a third of the upland flowing into Penobscot Bay, some offshore islands, and we saw connectivity between you know, Port Clyde, Rockland, Belfast, and Castine, and Stonington. But one of the challenges I think we faced through that whole process over many years was getting the people who live in Castine and on the east side of the bay to feel like they were in it with the, their partners across the bay as far away as Belfast and Rockland. And, uh, and I think that's still something we struggle with. Um, we, we can all, uh, it's important for us to look at these bioregional Places, you know, and a watershed is a very convenient way to look at shared challenges and shared opportunities, both social and, and natural systems. But a big watershed like that, it, it just has proven really difficult to get all those communities thinking that they're in this ecosystem together. Um, but we tried, and I think we had some, some good progress. So I can imagine that if you were a sailor or you're a fisherman, you see the Penobscot Bay as one place and you, you traverse that. But if you're land-based, if you're in your car, it's yeah. a long way around. <laughs> That's right. It's a long way from Fort Clyde to Castine. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, as I recall, um, uh, state senator at that time, Shelley Pingree, was one of our keynote speakers. And um, again, now she's in the House of Representatives for the state of Maine. She must carry some of that um, that knowledge that she gained and, and talked about fisheries issues. Yes, I remember... Um, Shelly speaking at our conference there uh, vividly, right, right in the church, in the, uh, the tabernacle there at the Searsport Marine Museum. Um, we also, I think before she got into the Congress, I had her come speak at a Sea Grant event. I think we were at the Samoset Resort, and I had the pleasure of hosting the National Sea Grant Network here in Maine. It was every four years we did this kind of a confab and brought everybody to, from around the country to Maine, and, and Shelley spoke about what it was like to live on an island off the coast of Maine and the challenges of being on that island and, and, and struggling with the same kinds of issues that you might on the mainland, but struggling with them in a different way because of the isolation and because of the independence that is absolutely necessary for survival. She was a young businesswoman at the time, and it was very provocative, and uh, I still have colleagues from the Sea Grant Network who remember her talk, because it was just, it was really important for other places in the United States to, to hear that kind of a story, and just, you know, how deeply people in island communities and working waterfront communities care about their place. So um, the next uh, chapter in your career was um, to, to join the Sea Grant program um, at the University of Maine. Um, talk a little bit about that transition. Was that, um, that was moving from a state agency to a university-based science education and extension uh, piece. What was that like? Yeah, I, I, I clearly remember being at DMR and, and pretty successful at the agency had, had um, was now running a, a department and um, within the department and um, we hosted a Sea Grant gathering and I had been working with you from Cooperative Extension and Susan White who was with Sea Grant and and some other people that were um, beginning to shape Maine Sea Grant as Maine and New Hampshire had been sharing a Sea Grant program 
These are networked programs around the country that are co-funded by NOAA and the, and the local universities. And so when the current director approached me about the likelihood that Maine was going to separate from New Hampshire, and he, he wanted to create an extension team, and building on, on your, your work, Ron, and then Chris Bartlett, who was already hired, it looked like there was this great potential for Maine to begin to build this extension expertise, which I thought was just perfect because it transcends that community policy and science place and, and gives you know, an opportunity for extension professionals to practice their science and their knowledge, but also learn from their communities and help communities to navigate their futures. And I just thought, wow, what a cool job that would be. And, um, and then the posting came out, so I applied for it and was able to go back to my alma mater and uh, joined that program and helped to manage some of the cooperative extension work going on around the Marine side and ultimately became Sea Grant director. And it was a wonderful part of my career. I, I miss the Sea Grant team. They're, they're great people. I still work with them probably more now than I, I did back then. But I got to lead the program for 16 years at UMaine, and it was a, it was a great success. And so part of that, um, two two aspects in, in you in that role. Um, one had to do with scientific research and and helping scientists connect with um, resources, money, but also with um, problems that they were trying to solve. And you were you were pushing them um, to, to both do pure science, but also applied science. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, UMaine has some great expertise in marine science, of course. The School of Marine Science has been very strong and was very strong at the time. So, so helping to fund some of those faculty through competitive programs. And I think more importantly, the Sea Grant investment were pretty small grants. So what we were able to do was to, to get graduate students in, in the mix. And, um, and I really enjoyed working with graduate students and helping to introduce them to communities through our extension professionals and um, give real relevance to their work. Um, and the notion of interdisciplinarity was emerging uh, while I was there, beginning in 2000s and right up till now, we're still chasing what does it mean to do interdisciplinary science? And so helping you know, natural scientists, young people who might be studying a scallop or might be studying a lobster or some kind of very focused theme, helping them to understand that that's not the whole story. There's another part to the story. And so, you know, getting them to think about communication skills, communicating science, getting them to think about how policy emerges. You know, what is the governance 101 where in your science can help create smarter legislation, you know, and, and helping students to find that space. And we had such enthusiasm from the student body. And I, I have to also mention that, I mean, Maine in general has some great science expertise with the Bigelow Laboratory and the Gulf of Maine Research Institute and, uh, and uh, the private colleges and the other parts of the Maine system. So, so being able to work with all of those institutions and get them working together on some things and get them uh, uh, plugging into Maine's real problems on the coast is a huge and enjoyable challenge. Mm -hmm. And it seems like um, you certainly were always part of Maine's Fisherman's Forum that um, I think Robin Alden and some other folks got started many yeah. years ago. But in your Sea Grant role, you began to, to step up in, in that realm as well. Yeah, because Sea Grant was part of the original organizers once Robin and Jim Wilson, who was a faculty member at UMaine, created the forum. I think we're at 35 or 40 years. I might have that wrong. More than 40, maybe. And... Um, 
and creating an annual institution out of it. Um, so Sea Grant was off, all, always at the table, and I got the opportunity when I took the Sea Grant job to actually be on the board of directors. And I shared, I was president of the board for four or five years um, and got to lead that organization, which exposed me to a whole other group of stakeholders and, and leaders in, in the fisheries and in the seafood side of the world, the aquaculture world. And, um, and you know, every, every, everywhere along the way, as I got the opportunity to do that kind of work, just meeting new people and hearing other perspectives on, on the complex story, which was really, um, you know, enjoyable and it helped to inform my work. Mm. And I think the, the other thing that the, the forum did was to, again, bring managers of fisheries, um, scientists, and folks who are pursuing fisher, fishing as their livelihood together um, into some interesting ways. Yeah, I remember. I mean, with the forum, it, it's had a struggle with the pandemic, so we haven't really had one in the last couple of years. Um, but when I was active there and, and enjoyed it, over the course of three days at the salmon set, we believed we had a thousand fishermen or more come through those doors at one point or another. And whether they just came to the trade show and, and looked at you know, diesel engines and, and gear, or whether they stuck their head into some of the seminar rooms, we didn't really know because we didn't track attendance. It's a free event. And, um, and so it was hard to gauge all of that. But the seminar rooms were often full and there was a full schedule for three days of different themes and topics and many of them jumping onto contemporary issues. And one of the things that was so striking to me is in, in my position in leadership, I, of course, had the pleasure of working with our senators and our congressmen and got to know their staffers. Um, but uh, at that event was the only event I knew of at the time where all four delegation members from D.C. and the governor would come to the Fisherman's Forum. They would coordinate their arrivals and their departures accordingly. <laughs> but they all came to that event. And I don't know, maybe the forest industry, maybe some parts of ag here in Maine had enjoyed that kind of um, traction, but and maybe it had to do that it was in the snottiest time of year in, in late February and early March. I don't know, but but to get all five of them and, and their important staff members paying attention to the forum was just it just demonstrated the importance of the work and the priority that they they placed on it. The other role that you played um, was at the kind of the national level of heading up the Sea Grant Association, as I recall. Um, that must have been both a learning um, curve, but there must have been some really, um, some good good associations with other states and, and working to support Sea Grant in Congress. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I still have and cherish friendships from all around the country because of the Sea Grant Network. Um, as wonderful an organization as Maine Sea Grant is, you got to imagine that there's 34 other ones around the country that are very, very similar in their construct and, and the people that they hire, the professionals that work on behalf of their constituencies have a similar um, you know, method, similar demeanor. It's that same combination of science, education, and engagement. And, uh, and they're all from coastal states as well as Great Lakes states and Hawaii. And so the Sea Grant Association is a nonprofit organization where all the universities from all 34 organizations um, have come together to create this association so that they can attract other kinds of funding into the enterprise or so that they can, they can uh, lobby for funding for NOAA and for other things without violating um, provisions because um, NOAA itself can't 
advocate for itself in a financial way before Congress, but the Secret Association can. And so I got to be president of the Secret Association for one term, which is a six-year term, and, um, and also was the external relations uh, chair for several years, and that means I did the government relations work. So I got to meet senators and congressmen from other states, too, working Capitol Hill, and um, you know, w watching high-end lobbying go on, which is a little gross, <laughs> but um, in our own little pedestrian way, we were we were doing the same thing, just talking about the really the importance of science and information for for our working waterfronts on a coastal way. And so I got to know the issues on the West Coast and the Gulf of Mexico, which has a whole bunch of stuff going on, and um, had the pleasure of being in Hawaii a couple of times because of that. Um, uh, because of that membership. And um, so the Sea Grant Association is still very much an active uh, organization. And, and I think they've been very successful in, in years since I left even and um, cultivating a lot of enthusiasm for investment in the Sea Grant model um, through federal appropriations for coastal resilience, for example. Marine aquaculture is getting a lot of funding through, um, through the Sea Grant network. You're tuned to Talk of the Towns here. I'm your host, Ron Beard, and I'm talking with Paul Anderson, um, currently the uh, head of Maine Center for C Coastal Fisheries. We're talking about um, his career that spans 30, 40 years, Paul? Yeah, it'll be 40 years. I, uh, I announced my retirement, my planned retirement back in the fall of 2021 to my board of directors, and um, they've gone through and have a, a hiring committee, a uh, search committee, going on right now and um, we have we've had some strong applicants and and my understanding is that we have a strong single one right now being vetted and perhaps later this summer that will be announced and uh, I'll retire from full-time service um, I will still be involved in these kinds of things I think either as a volunteer or in a part-time kind of way but I have other things that I, I want to do before you know I, my age limits me <laughs> Um, so as you think about these three kind of intersecting and, and, and really uh, connected roles with the Department of Marine Resources, with uh, Sea Grant at the University of Maine, and now with the Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries, um, are, are you kind of looking back and seeing some intersections um, that are still really intriguing to you? Um, what, where should we be headed in terms of, of making sure that these um, elements kind of work together? Yeah. It, I mean that's that's a huge question and it's a it's a it's an ongoing challenge. Um, I I think that when I took this job, I was perfectly happy and successful at the University of Maine. But if you think about it, I had been in a regulatory government role for ten years, kind of regulating things from a very specific scientific enterprise. I already mentioned how breaking that wall down, that barrier was intriguing to me. Then I go to the University of Maine, so now I'm in the academic world, and I'm getting to know how academic institutions work. Each of those two um, enterprises have their own flavors of bureaucracy and their own stovepipes and their own uh, challenges, but they also are serving a similar public service mission, right? And so when Robin announced her retirement from the center, and I was in a transition personally on some things, and um, and said, wow, that would be interesting to take a regulatory background and some academic chops um, in my own training. And then this, this you know, newfound enthusiasm for the non-governmental citizen role in all of this. 
what would it be like to, to embed myself deeper into the communities in a, in a nonprofit? And so that's why I went to the center to, to try that out. And, um, and, you know, again, it's been a learning opportunity, both in terms of what that means to be in a community that really, really depends on stuff on a daily basis to happen. And knowing that some of those structures that I already had been exposed to were somewhat slow and don't always be aren't always seen as delivering the goods and um, and could we be different in a small nonprofit? And I think to some degree the answer is yes, but I'll tell you that running a nonprofit is is no easy easy game either. There's a, it, there are structures in place and there are, there are protocols that we have to follow for running a professional organization and. And, um, and so it, it's been a learning opportunity. I do a great deal more fundraising and helping to, to manage capacity and uh, you know, administrative um, roles than I had anticipated. So I don't spend a whole lot of time on boats or out in the communities as much as I had thought I would. But, um, but it's still, it's, it's very important. And, and in the nonprofit world, I've gotten to meet several other nonprofit organizations in Eastern Maine many of whom are working together on, on some of these complex issues. Um, we're part of, as you know, the Down East Fisheries Partnership, which has, I think we're at eight organizations that are nonprofits in one form or another who essentially have a mission that says, we're here, communities need fishing and fishing needs communities. And, um, and so our mission fits squarely into that, but just to name a few of them, the Down East Salmon uh, Federation as part of the Sunrise County Economic Council and the Maine Coast Heritage Trust, for example. So that's it's a broad portfolio of interests and learning from one another and leaning into one another and understanding some of the challenges that we face in the development and revenue world and private foundations and other kinds of philanthropy. Um, and then trying to blend that public service role and mission with the partners that we need in government and that we need in academic institutions and that they are looking for. Um, so um, I'm not sure I'm getting to the answer to your question, but it, it, for me, it's been this, uh, this linking of all of these institutions and recognizing that, that we're here for public service if we can achieve our goals on behalf of the people that need to live, work, and recreate here, then I think we're making a difference. On the nonprofit side, it seems like one of the things that the groups that you mentioned, and we should also mention um, uh, DEI, the Down East... Uh, right. Uh, re what? Down yeah, East... Down East Institute. Down East yeah. Institute, I should have that. Um, it's about building the capacity of these organizations so that they can be effective partners. Um, with the organizations that you've also the Department of Marine Resources or the or the research community, and that's a struggle because each of these nonprofits on their own um, has to raise the money. They have to make sure that the payroll is is met every every month or every week. Um, so there's a lot of capacity building to to make that partnership. But have you sensed that um, government organizations and um, the university is is ready to partner with kind of local organizations like the one you lead now. I, I think absolutely, and you know, having been at the University of Maine and, and cultivated several research programs, I ran the Sustainable Ecological Aquaculture Network at one point. I ran the Aquaculture Research Institute, and so I know from within the institution, they, the leadership and the faculty, really want as as deep and meaningful connections to non-academics as they can cultivate. Sometimes 
they get stuck in their own place and they're stuck on a mosquito infested island in the middle of, of the Penobscot River up in Orono and sometimes it was a hard challenge to get faculty members off that darn island and out into communities but and that's why I think you know organizations like ours who do understand those constraints and limits um, are important and uh, and a wise faculty member uh, reaches out to us and they, they bring us in to partner on projects and we help to collaborate on, on grant proposals and and uh, and things of the like. There's a there's a fascinating um, opportunity through the National Science Foundation that some of the faculty continue to push for. We haven't been funded yet, but it takes a while to get it through NSF. But it's called the it's a it's essentially a traineeship for graduate students. And if funded, we'll end up with 20 or 25 graduate students. And and the design right now would have them working in coastal communities on a lot of the work that we do. So they would be hanging out with my group and hanging out with our fishermen and, and uh, you know, maybe living on the coast part of their, their graduate career and, and just get that full immersion. And you know, the fact that those faculty members in the National Science Foundation recognize that as an important part of this interdisciplinary training is really, really important. And uh, I, I hope we are successful at some point in getting that partnership to be deeper that way. You mentioned um, early on in your career recognizing that um, the Department of Marine Resources, as I suppose all state government agencies, don't have all the resources they need and began to reach out to effective citizen science. Um, is, is the Department of Marine Resources and other managerial um, kind of uh, groups, are they looking to the nonprofit sector as well? Yeah, I think, I think they really are. Um, they're... Their mission remains the same, and to some degree, their statutory authority remains the same, but their, their purpose and the way they manage our natural resources has to change. And then they, they recognize that. Their chief scientist is a, is a friend and colleague of mine, Carl Wilson. He's on our board of directors for, for the center, and um, he has expressed that, wow, the old traditional way of hiring stock assignments, assessment scientists for that fish and have a scallop researcher and a shrimp researcher is not the way of the future. And so over time, you know, Carl's recognized it as, as attrition happens and they have the opportunity to hire into positions of, that are, have that responsibility. They need to look more at interdisciplinary training. They need to look more at ecosystem interactions. Um, you know, their world is, is really heavily affected by some of these wicked problems that we know are out there around right whales and protection of marine mammals around ecosystem change, whether that's climate change or not, it's changing around us. And you know, the, the enthusiasm for renewable energy in the ocean environment, those things are really driving Carl's group. And, and so the department has to simultaneously meet its mandate that's codified in the legislation, but they have to realize that the stakeholder base and the needs of their communities is shifting into this kind of a less defined space. And I think that our ability to work with them along with the other NGOs helps them get into that space and a little more strategically. The, um, the Eastern Maine Coastal Current Collaborative that I mentioned earlier was created as a formal agreement between NOAA, NOAA Fisheries, Maine DMR, and the Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries um, five years ago in 2017. That, the fact that we signed an agreement that said we are going to work together, we are going to explore what ecosystem-based fisheries management means to Eastern Maine as a pilot for the world, 
that was one of the selling points for me coming to work at the center and you know Carl and his team's enthusiasm for what we can explore as we delve into the ecosystem parts of, of that equation is um, is really exciting and I think you know I, I think hard to speak for him but I think he would acknowledge that NCCF and some of the rest of us are helping to steward that conversation if you put your um, your uh, put your crystal ball on the table. Uh, what are some of the other uh, marine issues, marine-related issues um, that you see kind of emerging that we're going to have to tackle? Um, you've mentioned climate change, um, ecosystem-based management. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, put simply, um, ecosystem-based management has been written out about for decades. It's not brand new, but it was the idea that rather than managing individual species, we should understand how species interact with one another, how they interact with their ecosystem and their habitat, which is changing, and importantly, how fishing and the human side of a fishery interacts with those species or complex of species. So if you try to turn what I just said into a diagram, it becomes a spaghetti plot. It's just complicated. Um, but. Uh, and so what, the, what this initiative we started was going to do was to try to tease that spaghetti plot apart and, and ask more discrete questions about those species and the ecosystem, about the ecosystem change, about human, humans' dependence on that ecosystem and how humans are actually an important and kind of a dominant feature in that ecosystem and begin to uh, figure out where the information comes from for understanding those pieces and the relationships between them and could we come to a research framework to begin informing some of the data gaps things we don't quite know enough about the changing temperature the changing pH of the ocean the changing demographics of you know a place like Cutler Maine and, um, and, and could we create a research framework to begin filling in those gaps and maybe find out that there are metrics and, and, and features that we ought to be monitoring really, really carefully and consistently. So building up a more robust monitoring and observing network, taking advantage of new technologies for, for tracking that information and then creating models around understanding how those pieces of information relate together. And then ultimately, does that inform better management and policy? This is that that enterprise is very exciting and it's been written about in academic journals for decades, but nobody's really doing it. And so the exciting opportunity we have here in Eastern Maine is to see if we can tease that apart and begin doing that. And can we migrate carefully, of course, with appropriate sensitivities towards some policy shifts that do track um, how these species and how humanity relies on the working waterfront and on our ecosystem without messing it up and uh, making sure that we can sustain it for the future. Um, so I, I think there's a great opportunity here and I already mentioned the, the compartmentalization of the Gulf of Maine and that this is potentially a really important pilot program for the nation and even the world to, to explore better ways of collecting all of this information and understanding it. Uh, you've you've had a, a, a very full work life, but you've also had a, a full family life, and you've kept up your musical chop, chops, as, including one here at WERU as one of the hosts of Bronze Mount. Um, any lessons to share about work-life balance as you look back? Um, find it. Find the balance. Don't just work. Um, I, I guess I've, I've been fortunate 
um, in my life because I always loved my work. You know, to, I advise my sons and any young people that will listen, make sure you choose a vocation that you like, that you enjoy. That way when you get up Monday morning, it's just another great day. And, uh, and so to the extent that you have control over, over finding that opportunity and your vocation and your work, wonderful. I, I work hard, but I play hard too. And, um, and I have wonderful friends and family who enjoy making music together and cooking together and camping and enjoying the outdoors. I'm, I'm wicked into gardening. And, um, and so I just, you know, I, I find karma and doing busy stuff and, Usually, I end up with a smile on my face at the end of the day, and, and it's, uh, it's it, for me, there's a balance there in trying to take care of yourself and still do good work, but also, you know, make sure you're finding joy in what you do. How about um, folks who are exploring careers as a young person, one of those folks that might, you might be interacting with, with the um, fisheries uh, uh, skippers program. Uh, what advice do you have for them about careers in kind of marine science and, and management? One observation around the human condition that I that I have, and I, I witness it in in my work, and always have, is the importance of being a lifelong learner. And um, I don't know if I have been inspired by my parents or where I got onto that path, but I've always assumed kind of in a jocular fashion that, you know, today I know less than I will tomorrow. And, um, and I, I think that if, if young people, no matter what they're going to do, assume they don't know everything and are willing to continue to learn and be excited by the things that they don't yet know, rather than feel like that's in some way uh, a penalty or some, uh, some way an, an, an inadequacy. It simply is not. And so by, if you adopt that kind of a principle of, of living, then everything is new and you know, curiosity is boundless. And, uh, and I, I, would, I would think that in any vocation, certainly in the sciences, um, uh, that curiosity is, is really important for, for that. So I, I think that's one piece around uh, committing to lifelong learning. For young people, the, the Skippers program, it's been really fun sitting with some of these young, you know, 13, 14 year olds, many of whom have lobster boats that are paid for. They're making more money in a summer than the teacher at the front of the room. And to have these young boys and girls be curious about what they're seeing around me. I remember this one young boy at Jonesport Beals High School asking me, what's up with this ocean acid thing? And he was talking about ocean acidification. He didn't have the parlance, right? And he wasn't sure what his question was. But he had read a headline. I had heard a little bit in a science class or something and really wanted to know why does that matter and, and what does it mean to me if I'm going to be a fisherman? And uh, that was just really rich. And another young boy that same day was asking about these European crabs. What are those? And, uh, you know, so it, I, I just love the opportunity to, to interact with young people and I hope everybody will continue to help interact with young people and feed their curiosities even if there's kind of misinformation in the in the conversation um, just making sure that people are have an open mind and are seeing what's around them mm -hmm.
As you um, think about um, um, stepping back um, from your current position with the main Center for Coastal Fisheries, um, and you, you'll probably have interaction with whoever replaces you, um, any thoughts about um, guidance or, or um, easy advice that you could give them or some of your other nonprofit colleagues? Um, kind of looking back and, and kind of taking the opportunity to say, oh, keep this in mind, like curiosity for young people. Are there other elements of, of, of how you've lived and led your life um, that, that you might want to pass on? Um, that, that's hard to say, Ron, because, uh, you know, who am I to <laughs> have sage wisdom be a, uh, Again, I think that the, the nonprofits like mine that are working in this space are faced with a dilemma of working on what we call wicked problems. These are very, very complex problems. And some of what we've talked about for the last hour on all of the institutions and all the stakeholders and interests. Um, yeah, there's a common space in there somewhere, but many of us who are running an organization have to simultaneously keep track of the organization's mission, make sure you don't have mission creep, make sure you're contributing something. And in our space, it's around a public service mission. And being strategic about getting to the goals you set up and therefore having some rigor to your process and make sure you're actually following through and getting your day-to-day -day work. But also being opportunistic and recognizing that, that there are things you don't yet know that might govern what you do tomorrow. And so that balance of being strategic and, and opportunistic is, is, is just woven into the fabric of those of us trying to work on these wicked problems. In reality, we're not going to solve these wicked problems. This isn't about solving the big end of the game. We're going to have it all figured out. It's, it's a matter of incremental contributions mm -hmm. to, to the pieces. And, um, and you know, hopefully, if we communicate well among ourselves and we have kind of a vision of where we want to go. And, and here in the Gulf of Maine, I think we have a, a missed opportunity right now to, to think about what do we want the Gulf of Maine to be like 100 or 200 years from now? What don't we want to have here? And are there some principles around that vision that, that many of us would all uh, buy into and maybe adhere to? And, and so maybe there are some some uh, some stabilizing factors across this diversity of organizations working on these complex problems where we know we can all contribute and, um, and move the needle and, and recognize that our little piece is meaningful. Are you going to be making music um, in, in whatever happens afterwards in this next chapter? I, I will. I'm a hobby musician. I'm probably not that good. I pretty much taught myself all the way, um, along the way, but uh, I play a couple of different instruments and I've got some dear friends in bluegrass music and some other music that I, I play with periodically and I really enjoy playing for people and having them dance and, and uh, tap their feet. I do write songs and uh, so that's that's fun to do and I, I hope I'll do a little bit more of that and uh, I don't know if anybody, any of your listeners are ever going to hear my music or not, but uh, if they ever see get the opportunity um please say hello <laughs> great paul thanks so much uh, we've come to the end of the hour be sure and join us from four to five on the second wednesday afternoon of each month for talk of the towns podcasts of our programs can be found in the archive section of the weru website if you have comments or suggestions for topics please email us 
news at weru.org. And please tune in to our companion program, Coastal Conversations, with Natalie Springle of University of Maine Sea Grant from 4 to 5 on the fourth Friday of each month. Our theme music is a medley from Coronac on a Balnain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to Paul Anderson, who is currently uh, the executive director of the Maine Center for Coastal Fisheries, um, soon to be transitioning to the next chapter in his life. Um, thanks to those of you who listened. Uh, thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown and Joel Mann for helping to engineer post-production for this program. Stay tuned for Ralph Nader Radio from 5 to 6 and jazz straight ahead with Larry Stahlberg from 6 to 8. This is Ron Beard, producer and host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good afternoon. <laughs>